Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Joshua Khan with the news. Tragedy struck Castle Rock today as two women savagely murdered one another in what sources assure us was an isolated incident. But don't let this keep you from visiting my new favorite store, Needful Things, where I picked up the most amazing... Well, it's personal. And you wouldn't believe the prices. They both prices. Oh, well, that's all for today, listeners. I'm off to... Certainly not to Ben's house for no reason. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, C.M. Alexander, alongside Joshua Khan. Hey, everybody. And Benjamin Graham. Welcome back, constant readers. We'll have a look around. I hope you found something interesting that suits your needs. <laughs> Strong. <laughs> that is exactly how Mr. Gaunt sounds. Exactly in my head canon. <laughs> and today we are covering chapters 7 through 11 of needful things if you're reading along and if not major spoilers ahead and we have josh leading us through our discussion okay real quick summary of where we had part one a new store opens up people buy things goes weird right <laughs> that's fine yeah. let's just Is that dig pretty into much because <laughs> there's no real way to to concisely sum up what happens leland gaunt sells people things and makes them do dirty deeds done dirt cheap oh no <laughs> yeah yeah that's pretty much it uh it's that's a very fast summary for as much shit that happens in this book per chapter (laughs) it is an astounding rate of shit happening (laughs) yeah god it really is and this second part that we're covering today does not slow down from that pace So let's dive back into our favorite character. I'm sure all of our favorite character, Danforth Buster Keaton. He is maybe the prototypical king villain you love to hate. He's the the mayor from Under the Dome. He's just, (laughs) he's every king character that is like obsessed with status and is secretly going insane. And this is where we find out Kind of why he's going insane. We get a clue that it could be some schizophrenia in part one. But now we find out that these persecutors he's talking about are the government because he has been embezzling money from the town to feed his gambling addiction. And so this is where all this persecutor and stopping them from coming after me comes from. And of course, I think touching on what you said, what makes him this giant tool is there's a whole section where he's like, they sent a letter asking for these discrepancies and I wrote him a letter back and I thought that would do it. <laughs> but he just authentically thought he could outsmart mm-hmm. every person in government by just writing his own replies. He's the kind of person that thinks so much of himself while simultaneously not thinking of big picture like <laughs> he's just like what well, also he's a gambling addict yes, which is for sure rough but yeah he completely has himself fooled into if i ignore this long enough it will be fine yeah he's borrowed money from the town because he like all gambling addicts got in over his head and he is Wrapping things up at his office, he decides to walk home and he walks past Needful Things. And inside the window is what looks like a board game called Winning Ticket. Sam, do you want to tell us about Winning Ticket? Yeah, so Winning Ticket is like an early mid-century wind-up toy, I guess. And it has these little tin horses that go around a racetrack. And Gaunt has, of course, an amazing pitch to sell this item. And he tells him that back in the day... Betters would use this toy to predict the races. So they take the horses' names from the upcoming race and assign them to the metal horses, and then they'd start the toy and make a note of the winner. And they do this over and over until they've gone through all the competing horses, 
And then they take that and use it at the track. But but the crazy part is it was usually right. Or so I'm told. Like, that's that's the story. I, and I don't know. <laughs> I love that. He describes it as a horse racer's Ouija board. <laughs> that is amazing. And then in this, like, the same breath is like, but that's just a wives' tale. A wink. And <laughs> it's the the effect it has on Buster is so great. Like Buster immediately sees Gaunt as his best friend. The one thing that I thought was super cool, and I don't know if you guys caught this, every time we've seen people see Gaunt for the first time, they talk about his eyes, what color they are, and how it resonates to someone close to them. <laughs> what he sees when he yeah. looks into Gaunt's eyes is he sees a commiserating gambler's spirit in his eyes. Does not describe the them in any other way. I thought, oh, am I thinking of someone else? I thought they were bloodshot. Yeah, who was? That what? was Hugh. That was Hugh Priest. Oh, okay. That okay, sense. that makes sense. So to prove it works, they, well, not to prove it works, but just to to sell it to him, they place a bet, a favor for a favor, and exactly what would happen to a gambling addict the second Keaton wins he has to have it Mm -hmm. right before he leaves the store with it. After the sale, Gaunt slyly asks him if he knows about them. And that's just, (laughs) that's the last step for anybody wanting to control Buster. Yeah. He, he is an extreme, uh, has an extreme paranoia. And from here, we continually check back with Buster through the rest of these chapters. And it's just him being locked away in his office running winning ticket so we'll come back to him later but let's go to alan alan decides he is going to stop by needful things and as soon as he starts approaching gaunt gets a call from eddie warburton who we talked about we referenced last episode he's the janitor for the police station Mm -hmm. or the for the public works yeah and as he is coming towards the store, Gaunt gets this call, and he puts a sign that says, gone to Portland to retrieve stock. And there's this amazing moment where Alan is cupping his hands by his eyes and is trying to peek into there. And he reacts, and Gaunt's like, oh, fuck, he saw me. Because Gaunt's (laughs) just standing there in front of the window staring back. Yeah, but he's kind of invisible in a way. And when he has that moment where he's like, he saw me, because he's commented that he's trying to avoid Alan because... He can sense that he has been through something that would cause him to see more than most people would naturally see. And so that moment of panic and fear was really cool. And then it, you know, it cuts to Alan and he doesn't really see him, but he kind of, (laughs) he, he does have a sense though that he's being watched. So he does see him in a way, just not the way that God thought he did. And he writes him this very nice note on the back of his business card and slips it under the door and then God burns it like a jerk <laughs> with his Magic? mind yeah um i wanted to ask uh did gaunt remind you guys of anyone in this scene oh absolutely he goes dim goes yeah. dim a hundred flag from the eyes of the dragon yes, yeah absolutely oh god that's so the moment he clenches the note in his fist and it just says blue fa- flames fire through the spaces between his fingers I'm like that's fucking rad <laughs> he is as cool as flag from eyes of the dragon wanted to be (laughs) (laughs) yeah well if we think it's the same person he's had quite a long time to up his game to practice his patience yeah because that's really what caused him a lot of strife Uh, is not having patience (laughs) now we go back to polly polly is sitting at home sitting by her window and watching kids play in the neighborhood and she just sort of starts spacing out because her hands are getting warm and tingly and that's how she can tell that a real bad rush of pain is about to come to her and we talked about it in their after their sex scene that (laughs) (laughs) i'm not gonna rehash the sex scene please don't but we talk about that alan feels we we explore alan's guilt post-coitus and we're left with that. This time we come to Polly, who is also feeling a different kind of guilt because Alan has he's put all of his shit out there. She knows every detail of all of his trauma, what's burdening him. And she still hasn't told him the truth. But this is where we find out the truth. 
Uh, Sam, can you kind of summarize what your takeaways from what we learn about Polly's backstory? Sure. So we finally learn about Polly's son and what actually happened when she left. So she gets pregnant at the age of 16 by a guy whose name I can't remember. And is ultimately unimportant. (laughs) Yeah. And her parents are, and this was a different time too, but her parents are not at all supportive. And they, they get into this big fight and they want her to go away so that they're not embarrassed. They want the problem, you know, go away. Problem will be taken care of, you know, presumably like adopt the baby out and come back and things will be fine and we can move on with life. And she does not accept that. So she's like, screw you guys. I'm out of here. And she takes off and she ends up kind of um, moving about a bit, being a, a little bit of a drifter. And she has her baby in Colorado. And she did think that she was going to give him up, but just bonded with him and and felt that love and was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to do this. She eventually ends up in California where she's working as a waitress hmm. at a, what sounds like a terrible diner with like <laughs> a horrible boss that is lecherous. Polly has kind of a hard life, like many women hmm. in that era, unfortunately. The, this whole segment makes Polly such a badass. Mm-hmm. Like she lives this really hard life on her terms. It talks about fighting and her son never, never went hungry, but she had to like scrimp and save. And, it's, yeah, and she was like scrawny and skinny, but mm-hmm. she did everything she could to take care of him and was, as far as we could tell, a great mother. Mm-hmm. And he would have had a great life had a tragedy not occurred. So there, while she's at work, she has a babysitter, there is a fire and her son and her babysitter die. And what is so heartbreaking about Polly's flashback, her telling us her story, is that she's kind of had like this spotty communication with her parents and they've tiptoed around issues and they're all kind of playing it safe and being nice. And they, she never tells anybody what happens and they want her to come home. And she is so afraid of being honest with them, being honest with the town, anybody knowing what happened to her son because he was hers. Mm. And she feels that by explaining what happened, she would be giving something away, like giving something of him up. And I think that's part of why she hasn't told Alan yet. But her Mm. guilt's coming from the fact that, you know, Josh, as you said, Alan has been forthright with her. And we got this very heartwarming scene where she really pulls him out of his his guilt and and kind of wakes him up. And now we understand why. Like, oh, she's had this conversation with herself. Mm, now she needs yeah. to listen to herself. But I thought it was interesting that her guilt is coming from not being honest with him about her past when he wouldn't be upset with that lie. Mm-hmm. With, and he would understand why she wanted to keep that for her and hold on to that. What he would be upset with is not knowing the true extent of her pain with her hands because mm-hmm. that kind of mimics what happened with his wife she was really suffering and he didn't know it and he blames himself for not seeing it so if something happens to polly he's going to blame himself for not knowing how bad her pain really was mm-hmm. i oh, oh sorry i was just gonna say i hate that this entire section uh especially the the, the whole segment of her trying to all right her process of moving back to castle rock all I could think was that their relationship was uh, with her parents was just the it's the Gilmore girls. <laughs> I, I've never seen that. her parents do eventually die, like not not eventually, kind of within a couple of years. I think of her, she doesn't even return home because they mm-hmm. come and they have this big blowout. She's like, yeah, uh, I'm gonna hang her out here for a little bit longer, but we can <laughs> keep talking. And so Lorelai. we do briefly get another character from this though who i love her aunt evie yes yeah yeah aunt evie and she's imparting her wisdom on her in this very just straightforward no muss no fuss kind of way and helps polly recognize that she belongs to castle rock and castle rock belongs to her and i think that's when she realizes that she can eventually come home and she doesn't have to give part of herself away. Yeah. She doesn't have to be from away or from here. She can like, just she be Polly. Just, yeah. 
Aunt Evie, uh, this is just a little aside I wanted to make. She's such a small part, but that scene of her at the, it was at the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. With her Aunt Evie killed me because her Aunt Evie reminds me so much of my Grandma Dolly. She's just this like on the surface, hard, no nonsense woman who is just like nah fuck it (laughs) fuck what all these people think but then is like truly caring and sweet and that she never cries but she does offer her a hard candy which is (laughs) it it just really reminded me of my grandma can i talk for just like two minutes a little more in depth about their final exchange that we get because aunt evie's telling polly you know maybe it's okay if you don't come back right away because the way you are right now, there won't be a chance. And Polly's like, what are you talking about? What chance? And she says, your chance. The chance for you to live your life the way you want to live it. The person I'm seeing right now isn't capable of doing that. And basically, like, you need to accept the past and move forward with it to be able to live your life. But what she what she says that is kind of cool is she says that she believes in ghosts, but not the way that most people think of ghosts. Ghosts, she describes, are people who cannot let go of the past to their own detriment. Oh, she also, I just thought this was cool, Ben, you'll appreciate this. She refers to her, to Polly's dead son, Aunt Evie, refers to him as your chap. Yeah. Which yeah. is a very dark tower. I know, I, I did, like, start at that, and I was like, is that a dark, no, of course it's not. It's just a weird a weird uh, <laughs> phrase that King likes. <laughs> yeah, so she tells her, go where you want to go, but do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Go there alive. And then, you know, come back here when you're ready and you'll be fine. Did you like that Polly referred to that part of herself uh, as practical sensible? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I read that, I was like, yeah, CM's gonna <laughs> really dig that. And we come back that Polly has been going through this flashback and she has spent literally all day in that chair, not Mm -hmm. moving, afraid that it will hurt when she does. Now we're going to revisit Nettie Cobb, who, boy howdy, does Nettie Cobb have a few chapters ahead of her. It's a prelude. (laughs) Do you guys have the thing where you're reading something and you're really into it and your significant other comes in the room just trying to talk to you like you're both human beings and you love each other. And you're like, I will destroy you. Get away from me and let me finish this chapter. Because uh, that happened to me. I, I have definitely had some times where I've had to be like, shush, 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 shush. Be with you in a minute. <laughs> there are things happening. Yeah. So Nettie Cobb, who last we checked with her, was being terrorized by Wilma Jerzyk and had not left her house. Well, she hasn't left her house in two days, but today's the day she's talking to her little puppy boy Raider that she made Polly a lasagna and she's going to take it to her. And she has come up with a way to cure her walking a few blocks and thinking she didn't lock her door. She locks her door and she uses the key to scratch herself. So when she thinks, did I lock the door? She can look down and see, Oh, I 100% did. That's such an amazing small character detail. Yeah. It informs so much of Nettie Cobb's personality that she would think to do that. I would never have thought to do, to fucking carve, I did this (laughs) into my skin. (laughs) It it really uh, gives you a feeling of what her mentality is like. Is, Is that a sign of how much Polly means to her? That she's willing to... The, the whole oh, point absolutely. Is, it's not about just leaving her house. It's about going and taking something to Polly. So I can say now, yes. But as I was reading it, I was terrified. I know you guys won't be because you've read it before. That this lasagna was part of a prank. And I was worried <laughs> that she was going to be doing something to Polly. But we knew who her prank was for. I know. Do you? Oh, yeah. We, at this point, do, they had but, said... Yeah, okay. But I... You know, I we find out in this section, I believe, 
that it's not just one. It keeps going. That's true. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that at this point, but I think I kind of like picked up that that might be the case. I was like, no, 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 not Nettie and Polly. I fucking love that twist, but we'll get to that shortly. (laughs) When she leaves, ominously, Hugh Priest sits up from his pickup truck and makes his way towards her I hate this. Of course. Yeah. How much dog violence must we endure? (laughs) Too much. That is the right answer. Yeah. Just kill more people. Don't kill animals. (laughs) I know that sounds weird, but we all feel that way. Hey, but a foxtail told him to do it. (laughs) No, that doesn't work. It doesn't? Okay. Well, okay. Actually, it's very important that the foxtail is what tells him to do this prank in his dreams. And we'll circle back to why that's important here at the end. He uses his skeleton keys to break into Nettie's house because he's got to do his prank or else he's going to lose his foxtail. We got to You find another word than prank. Cause Deed? this is, Deed yeah, is the word they use. In the yeah. book. Cause up to this <laughs> point, prank is an adequate word for sh- what yeah. people have done. Nothing too murdery about it. This is a more than a prank. <laughs> this it, is a crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it absolutely. It absolutely is. As he breaks into Nettie's house, we cut over to Polly, who is at this point going through so much pain. She has to use her tongue to take a pill because she can't pick one up with her fingers. And she has to eat it like a popcorn. Yeah. And then Nettie shows up to bring her comfort and lasagna and company. And just really, that's the point where she talks about her guard dog raider and uh, quit foreshadowing this. We know what's happening. Draws the, it's just a, the important thing. She says that raider rolls over for belly rubs. Anytime someone comes by. And it was at that moment that I recalled what was about to happen and almost threw up in my mask. It, I was desperately wanting to revise that sentence into my head that Raider runs out of the door and gets away from Hugh Priest yeah. anytime the door opens and it's not me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tragic, almost as tragic as, I mean, this entire scene is so sweet and shows two characters that care about each other so much. Yeah, And it's such a just heartwarming scene. You just know shit's fucked. Like, you know (laughs) something bad is going to happen, even if he hadn't ended this chapter or this uh, section of Nettie leaving Polly's house with the phrase, it was the last time Polly saw Nettie alive. God, it's brutal. We go back and Hugh is inside her house. Raider barks and rolls over for belly pettins. And uh, and Hugh pets him while also drawing a Swiss army knife. Can I? Do you want me to drag this out further? No, I just I'm so angry that while he murders this dog, there's the that he part. Talks. Yeah, he's yeah. like, oh, my gosh, this is a really good dog. Wow. What a sweetheart. And then even after he is very upset by what he did, which did make me feel like marginally better. At least he wasn't just like, OK, glad that's over. He was like, oh, Oh God. And I'm sorry. Just that's kind of what I wanted to touch on is that he puts the note that the Fox gave him. The Foxtail gave him a note that says, nobody slings mud at my sheets. I told you I'd get you. He pins the note to the corkscrew and pins the corkscrew to the dog and thus killing Raider. Yeah, it's bad. It's so violent and it's so disturbing. You know, it's bad, but I actually hated uh, when Nettie, Finds the note worse. Yeah. Yeah. The but the the point that I wanted to talk about, the that it's important that the foxtail is is who's giving yeah. him this message in his dream, is that he does try to rationalize. Well, I was this isn't something I would do. I I'm I'm under some hypnosis, and there's a part of his brain that refuses to let mm-hmm. him hide behind that. And I thought that is real rock-solid emotional horror. It was amazing, and I was so angry when he lost that thread because he he had the sense that someone was breaking in to steal his foxtail because I wanted him to suffer with what he had done. But doesn't that imply... Yeah, I was about... It it implies (laughs) 
to me that this anytime he's not thinking about the foxtail, he will be thinking about this. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I haven't read far uh, yet. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, it's the same thing where uh I think it was when Brian slung mud at the sheets. It's the same thing where in the moment they're like, Hell yeah. <laughs> like yeah, this is, this, no, is fine. this is fine. Yeah. But the second he walked away, he knew what he had done was terrible. Yeah. And we come next to to Brian Rusk, who sees Hugh Priest leaving, because Brian is doing another deed, which is kind of to touch on what you said, Ben. Brian stumbles onto the knowledge that the more you have to do to keep something, the more you want to hang on to it. Because he has another dream where Sandy Koufax, with Leland Gaunt's face, tells him he has another deed to do. And he points out that I never said it was one deed. You're going to do as many deeds as I say you're going to do, because that's how this works now. And if you don't do it, not only will you lose what I gave you, but the whole town's going to know that you're the first one. You started this. That's a lot to put on a kid. It's too much. (laughs) Such shitty little kid logic that he uses against him. The, well, you just said I had to do a deed uh, and I did my deed. And he's like, I didn't say you had to do one deed. I just said you had to do deeds. It's just like such a little bully (laughs) who's like, Nah, I. It's it was frustrating for yeah. me. Uh, ben, do you want to tell us about his second deed? Yes, this image was very funny to me because as Hugh Priest, I believe, is walking to Nettie's house, he sees it. Just says he sees a kid riding his bike with a big like igloo cooler (laughs) in his bike basket and like is struggling to keep up uh, upright. And we find out that was Brian because he has a big ass igloo cooler full of rocks and he takes it to Wilma Jerzyk's house while they are out at mass, Mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. At this point he is like not happy about this. He doesn't, to do it yeah but he pulls out the rocks and he starts throwing them through all of the jerzik's first floor windows. all of them all Which is, of she went them. To ta- a lot of fun was, man i thought it was gonna be like one with the note on it just through the picture window okay we're done yeah. no he destroys their <laughs> house brian has a fucking arm on him yeah, yeah he does. Kid, this kid must play baseball he, like, <laughs> he puts one through the tv I think he dents their, like, fucking fridge or something. And the microwave. The bash of the microwave. puts a hole in one of the living room walls, trashes their house, and every rock has rubber-banded to it a note saying, I told you to leave me alone. This is your last chance. Or something to that effect. Something to that effect. I warned you. This is your last warning. Right. And then he escapes into the night. (laughs) Well, into the midday. So much of what we read through these chapters happens in not even a whole day. Before noon. From like 5 a.m. when Nettie gets up to go visit Polly because she says she wakes up really early because she wanted to go over to the big confrontation, which is at like 1. Yeah, we're Mm -hmm. at like noon. Mm -hmm. If. If. (laughs) No, it's a long time before noon because... Of where Nettie goes next. Ah, yes, Nettie stops by Needful Things to see if she can get Gaunt to go to Polly. Because she doesn't think Polly can make it. The second she walks in, Gaunt has her under his hypnosis. And is like, she'll be fine. Close your eyes. Nettie thinks she's going to get a present. I'm not sure why. But she opens her eyes and it's a stack of traffic violation tickets. he's like well it's time for you to do your deed head on over to buster's he's gonna be out all morning let's uh let's do this fun prank fun 
hilarious prank. And she like she even says she's like, but I have to go home and feed Raider. And he's like, <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, you're fine. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you have to worry about him. Oh. And then he like he winks, and she's like, what? Like, Nothing. No, you'll get it later. Because <laughs> oh. Gon thinks he's hilarious. Uh, and now we rejoin uh, Buster and his wife Myrtle. Uh, ben, could you summarize Ben and uh, <laughs> could you summarize Buster and Myrtle's relationship for us? Sure, it's bad. Yep. Yes. Moving um, on. <laughs> so we haven't really Myrtle has been mentioned in passing, but once we get to actually meet her, she is so sad. She's a rich Nettie who hasn't found her strength yet. Who hasn't forked her husband in the throat yet. <laughs> yeah, because uh, she is completely emotionally abused mm-hmm. by Buster. She says that like they used to, when, when they first started dating, that they were truly in love. But for some reason in the past year or two, however long it was, mm-hmm. that he is either entirely dismissive of her when she's lucky uh even though that's terrible yeah when he is not he is berating her mm-hmm. and that's what's so crazy is we we find that buster was a good dude like i mean maybe not a good guy but well, he was he was he, a politician well, so he, <laughs> the point is he before the gambling took him they say he lived a very black and white life yes and he he was a guy who was true to his word and he was good by his own standards. Yes. There was never any implication that he treated her poorly in any way. Or but, that he would even be the kind of person who would gamble except, oh, addiction, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he, ever since he started gambling, ever since he, he it started to get out of control, he's be- she's become nothing to him. And she still believes in him. She believes he's the hardest working person in town it's so sad and even sadder when uh well we come to this with her being extremely happy because buster had went to the track the previous night and this morning he had woken up smiling at her and oh he could pop a boner yeah they they have Vanilla missionary sex. <laughs> and, uh, and then, <laughs> that you're probably right. Yeah. Oh no, I'm absolutely. absolutely. I can guarantee that. Um. But uh, he then takes her out to a fancy breakfast out of town, and she thinks, I, I don't know what happened, but this is the happiest morning of the in years. She sees him smile for the first time in like 18 months. Yeah. It's. Sad because you know. It's like I said earlier. Something good happens in a Stephen King book and you know, oh, this is only (laughs) happening to make what happens next worse. Right. And she's having, she's enjoying this so much. And then we get a glimpse into what's going on in his head. And he's already working on the spin tactic because he won $18,000 at the track by writing down all of the bets that he got on winning ticket. And he found a 30 to 1 and won 18,000. He's he's happy because he feels like he's got enough money now he can kind of spin this in a way that won't get out of control and won't land him in federal fucking prison. Says every gambling addict. Right. Ever. <laughs> and he decides that um, we're going to go home. I'm going to watch the game. We're going to relax and hang out. And she asks to be dropped off to grab a dish so she could make him a snack. Very cute. Except for the fact that he snaps at her and calls her an idiot. Yeah. Well, except for that. It's at the house of... One um, of the other selectors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somebody that he doesn't trust. Yeah. Meanwhile, Nettie shows up to Buster's house and just kind of hangs out. Yeah. <laughs> Is that... <laughs> she's she's looking through all of Myrtle's stuff, like looking at yeah. her lingerie and her dresses and stuff and... I think it's to give us even more sad insight into Myrtle and kind of Nettie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just an excuse for the ticking clock. Yeah. Um, 
but it's effective oh, because even having read this, I was like, get out of there. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Because well, we keep cutting back and forth as she's, mm-hmm. she's there to put up all of the parking violations. And she's like toilet papering the inside of his house with parking violations. Yeah. And as she's doing this, as she's just moseying about, actually, we keep cutting back to Buster and Myrtle who are on their way. And then he's dropping her off. And then we know that he's almost home. And Nettie's like, Oh, yeah, I came here to do something. (laughs) The note I made is Nettie is putting the last of the tickets up when Buster pulls in the driveway and she pees herself with fear. (laughs) This is not the worst thing that will happen to her today. Oh. (laughs) And then I got real sad. (laughs) But she hears Gaunt's voice in her head telling her to calm down and just get out of there. And thank God she listens. Or thank, like, not thank God. That's fair. I mean... I imagine what Buster would have done to her. Uh, you know, I don't... Uh, would it have been worse? Could've I been. mean, I, I think she would have been doomed either way. But yeah. this is the thing about Gaunt's plan. Big plan in quotes, big <laughs> question mark. It could fall apart at any second. It is the most convoluted. It is like the... the every Every movie you've ever seen... Where the villain's plan is, well, if one person had done something even slightly yeah. different, yeah. none of the rest of the movie would have happened. Right. Like, but, he, but the fact that he jumps into her head tells you that we're not leaving that to change. Gaunt's not leaving this to one person not doing something. Fair. If he feels like he needs to step in, he steps in. This is where I really understood how interconnected the deeds were. Like, I I kind of assumed that to start, but this is where I was like, oh, okay, so that's, this person got that so she could get this and then do this and this and this is going to be bad. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Nettie, uh, thankfully for Nettie, I guess, Buster is paralyzed by the sight of all these tickets when he comes in and gives her time to gump home. (laughs) 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 I did let, just... I don't want to laugh at a woman in the final hours of her life, <laughs> but uh, yeah, once again, another image of her just like Terminator running down the middle of the street. I enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, can we talk real quick? We're talking about the voice that she hears Mr. Gaunt's voice. Yeah. I want to know what you guys think about Gaunt's weird kink. Go on. He makes everyone... Say a very specific phrase. Oh, daddy's always right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say daddy like you, but I mean, no, that, wasn't, that wasn't it. No, he keeps, he, first to Brian Rusk, he, he, when he's fighting back and saying, no, I don't want to do another deed, he makes him say, Mr. Gaunt knows best. It slowly, more and God. more people start saying it. <laughs> And it creeps me out. It's gross. The only, it's gross. It didn't bother me at first, but now that you described it as a fetish, <laughs> now, now I'm just hearing it as I like as I'm imagining it. Mister Gott knows best, and him going Ugh. like that's <laughs> that's what I, that's what's twisted this in my head now. God, that's gross, but it's accurate. <laughs> Nettie finally gets home, and she feels safe for a full ten seconds <sighs> before she trips over Raider. And she sees the note flash over to Wilma Jerzyk, who is arriving home ready because she has plans to do something to Nettie to torture her because that's how Wilma gets her rocks off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now say, Mr. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, Wilma arrives home to see all of her shit smashed. And sees the note and flies into a blind rage. No, even better, there's a split second when she just stands there <laughs> and goes, Yeah, well, shit, she really fucked up. <laughs> she, she smiles. Yeah. She smiles like, hell yeah. <laughs> she, she done did it. Uh, you might say that Wilma was surprised that Nettie had the stones. Oh, yes! <laughs> now say Mr. Gauntlikey, uh, babe. Mr. Gauntlikey. <laughs> Thank you. I hate that. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> that doesn't even 
even make sense. <laughs> I don't want to do another deed, Mr. Gaunt. Say Mr. Gaunt likey. <laughs> what? <laughs> When you say it in an angry voice, it's even better. <laughs> uh, at this point, Wilma pulls out a giant carving knife from her kitchen and heads to Nettie. At the same time, Nettie grabs a meat cleaver and heads for Wilma. A uh, meat cleaver, much cooler weapon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as we know, they are marching off towards each other for what we can only assume will be a good, clean fight. Yep. We jump back over to Buster, who is going through all of the tickets. Sam, do you want to cover some of the tickets that are hanging in his house? Ah, uh, yeah, man. So he's going around pulling all these off, and they all say something different, which is so delightful. I did yeah. not expect that. So there's some normal stuff, like you've got embezzlement as the violation, because there's like a spot for what he did, and yeah. there's other violation. So embezzlement. Horse fucking. <laughs> That's my favorite one. Cornholing your mother. Mr. Gaunt likey. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> compulsive money chucking at Luston Raceway. Psychotic garbage head paranoia, which I kind of <laughs> like. Stealing from the town pension fund to play the ponies. So some of them are very, like, accurate and others are just bombastic. Um, I don't want to say one of them because yeah, yeah, it didn't some, age well. There's yeah. some problematic language some, here. It's basically financial butt fuckery, but it's okay if you like butt fucking. I mean, go <laughs> sure, <for it>. yeah, <laughs> that tracks. Yeah, I like to imagine that there's a bunch uh, that we aren't shown, and that there's some just like really extra hilarious ones <laughs> that because he got creative with them give us some ben like just pulls down once like fuck you <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you talking to me or is that <laughs> that's i used to be a professional <laughs> improviser <laughs> violation tickling the tin toy oh that, that's that's gross. much better <laughs> that is gross that is it is disgusting uh, and they are all signed by Norris Ridgwick. They have his stamp on him, so he sees the name on all of these tickets. Violation. Your, your dick is bad. <laughs> bad, <laughs> bad penis. Vanilla missionary penis. <laughs> Ugly dick. <laughs> are you okay, Ben? <laughs> That's just a very funny combination of two words. <laughs> <laughs> really got really got me. Fine dick, weird balls. <laughs> I'm just imagining him coming home and he's like, embezzlement, horse fuckery, weird balls. What? <laughs> I didn't know that was illegal. <laughs> Mr. Gauntlike? <laughs> huh? <laughs> this is even grosser than when we covered The Outsider. <laughs> Part two uh, of Boner Talks. Yes. <laughs> this concludes our podcast within a podcast, Boner Talk. Uh, well, I'm glad we got all uh, that laughing out because there will be no more laughing for the rest of this chapter. No, there won't. <sighs> because we jump back. To the Old West-style showdown on the corner between Nettie and Wilma's. They run into each other on this corner. Nettie charges first. Wilma thrusts her carving knife into her bowels, lifting into her stomach. But it says stopping before it can reach her... Heart. Her heart. Thank you. Nettie brings the cleaver down into her shoulder, crunching her collarbone... They pull free and Nettie's guts fall out and start uh, swinging between her legs. And she doesn't notice. <laughs> she thinks it, she might have cut me a little. In the side. It is astounding how, I don't know, in a normal fight scene, you might have this like tension of who will win, who's going to best the other one. And from the first second it is clear these are killing blows 
immediately. They go after each other harder than I've ever read a fight scene. It's, it just from from the start. This was my first Stephen King moment. Oh my! This fight yeah. was my very first Stephen King moment that has stuck with me uh, forever. The, the describing how the blood is puddling at their feet as they like circle each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then Fuck. a woman hearing this chaos calls out. It distracts Wilma for just a second. Nettie chops her in the hip, cracking her pelvic bone. Nettie trips over Wilma because she fell back. Nettie trips on her foot, falls, and impales herself on the knife. Nettie brings the cleaver down onto the top of Wilma's head, causing Wilma to convulse, which in turn drives the carving knife deeper into her, and they die in a lover's embrace. This is an absolute... Stephen King moment. This is iconic. It is such a short, brutal spat of violence that it is shocking. Yeah. I've never, I'd never read such savagery between two women of a certain age on a street corner in broad daylight. That's in the fact that it's in broad daylight. You did a great job summarizing that because this is where my husband who's very wonderful, (laughs) interrupted me. And I I couldn't even articulate my need. I was just like, I I can't, you gotta, I'm in this, I just need two pages. Just hold on, two pages. (laughs) It was so horrible to read about because of how much we like Nettie too Mm -hmm. and what she has been through before, what she has overcome. And you just knew that she was not going to get out of this one. Because Stephen King told us she was going to die. Now, I I know the answer for me, but I'm curious for the two of you, and I don't know, Ben, if you remember. CM, when you finished this fight scene, did you continue reading or did you just have to stop for a while? Oh, sorry. I think Raider's barking. (laughs) Um, Where's my corkscrew? (laughs) Oh, God. I don't hate the neighbor's dog. Cut that out. (laughs) I had to pause. I just had to take a break because I felt like it was only respectful to stop and absorb the moment for Nettie, which is insane because she's she's not real. I when I first read it, I don't remember because I was probably in a math class. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it it's it is a brutal moment from here. Polly makes her way into Needful Things, finally. And CM, I want to hear what you think about this scene, about what she got. It's described, it's like an amulet, and it's ancient mm. Egyptian. And what do they call it, an Ozka? Yeah, Ozka. And I don't know anything about that stuff, so Same. I have no like preconceived notion of what that might represent. So I'm totally blind here. It looks like a silver tea ball. Yeah. So immediately I thought, well, if she steeps it and drinks, (laughs) (laughs) well, like what's going to happen? No, but there's what was super creepy about it is that there is something that slithers inside of it that is not like the rustling of dried herbs. It's like something alive, something organic. And... I'm afraid for her, (laughs) and I hope that that's a very secure mechanism that keeps whatever is inside of that inside. And you want to talk about what it does? Yeah, I guess that's important. (laughs) (laughs) I was so, like, focused on having something slithering around your neck that... I was wondering, I was actually wondering how long that imagery hung with you. It's still there. (laughs) No, she goes into Gantz, and he's telling her, I have this thing, and look, I know it's crazy... But it, I, I just thought of you, and she's kind of reminded of reading, you know, the the shitty ads in the paper where it's like garbage. And there was one that was supposed to help arthritis, and she almost called the one eight hundred number to order it, even though it was like, it, you know, snake oil type yeah. stuff. And so she's kind of humoring him because you know it was nice of him to think of her, and he's like, you know what, just just humor me and try it, and if it doesn't work. No harm done. And he tells her, though, he does warn her, which is horrible, that if it does work and she takes it off, that all of her pain will come back. 
all at once. Yeah. And God. And when she puts it back on, her pain won't go away immediately. She will have to build up whatever it is it's doing again. So she would. The be, effect is cumulative. And as someone who went a year without a migraine and then had one, going without that pain and then all of a sudden being thrust back into that place, you can't cope with it the way you used to. It is like a thousand times worse. You've lost some of that tolerance. So I, we don't get anything more from it except there's like this faint, um, like kind of dry smell. Yeah, to it. almost like a flower. I, I I think the worst, the worst part of this amulet, the creepiest part for me is that he specifically says to for it to work the best, it has to be against your skin. Yes, that is one hundred percent. In that same vein, I also felt that it was super creepy that he is offering it free on trial. Yeah. yeah. That it's I, like, here, try this out. If it doesn't work, bring it back and we'll get you something else. But no charge. There's no price for this. This is one of the things that I don't remember. I'm, I'm finding I remember so much about this book, having not read it in like 15 years. But that's one thing I don't remember is I, I was like, why is he not dickering here? What What is the purpose? What is so special about this deal? Because Polly's dating Alan, and he's afraid of Alan, so you'd think that this would be a good opportunity to put her under his spell and be like, stab him in the throat with a fork while he's sleeping next time he stays over. Problem solved. Right? But uh, That makes sense. Uh, but, I mean, but that's not Gaunt's style. I know. that. Uh, eh. Yeah. He's got to make it way more convoluted. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's, that's his game. So uh, we... Catch back up with Alan, who has driven to Augusta for the autopsy on Wilma and Nettie. Okay, for a split second at the beginning of this chapter, Mm -hmm. I was so impressed with the restraint that King uses because it goes from the, the confrontation to Alan coming out of the autopsy room. And I thought... Uh, and then going to have a cigarette and talking with Norris about how awful this is. And I thought that is such a great storytelling where we don't need to see everything to happen between mm-hmm. then and now. We just immediately get to see Alan exhausted and we see how much, how heavy this is on his shoulder. And I was like, that's really cool. And then... A few pages later, it's like, so the day started like this. Is, <laughs> yeah, the, I did not like that. Yeah, it's a lot of the cop work that they describe. I don't feel all it was for was to set up Alan's doubts. Right. But that's also effectively done in the scene when he's in bed with Polly, thinking to himself about how all of this is kind of off yeah and if you follow if you follow the implications of these pranks you know the the setup you know what they what gaunt wants the police to think i completely disagree with both of you really (laughs) yeah i loved this it was so cool and i agree though ben it it was cool the way he cut to that and Mm. it would have been fine to leave that but going back and for me it was seeing the care and consideration and how serious Alan takes his job and how mm-hmm. good of a sheriff he really is because he the way he preserves the crime scene and he's yeah. thinking about the chain of custody, not just, you know, in, in the normal way that you would as an officer, right. but also thinking about how it is in a small town mm-hmm. and how he needs to be extra mindful of it because they're going to have to call in the state cops and they're, you know, really judgmental of how small town cops handle things. And then... Like seeing him understand the events of the day in a way that like, you know, that's how they're going to be interpreted because Mm. of the notes and how everything's set up. But, you know, that's not right. So that drove me a little bit crazy in that cool way that I was like, no, no, don't believe that. And then we kind of come back and we get him just, you know, in bed with Polly picking through that and it's not adding up and you're watching him make those connections. And it's like so relieving and exhilarating that our character 
is getting all these pieces and that's that it, it was a good build up for yeah, me that it, that is a good point and i mean it is all still very good and mm-hmm. compelling all of the, i completely agree that i love seeing alan work because it's part of his character is showing how competent careful he is and how really good at his job it's all very good it's just i think my my problem was it, it was just a matter of the beginning of the chapter subverted my expectations mm-hmm. because King loves showing you every event of every day <laughs> and having that subverted in this like, oh, we we skip ahead and, you know, all this. And then having it immediately be like, no, nah, we're going to hear everything. <laughs> we're going to watch him walk every, through. Yeah. yeah I, we're gonna, and, and to correct, I guess, to clarify what I said, I liked the walk through the crime scene. The part that I didn't like was him rehashing everything we already know yeah. to Norris. Which, also, Norris didn't puke, guys. No, I know. I'm very Good for upset him. about that. Good for him. <laughs> I'm disappointed. <laughs> well, and just It shows a quick... he's growing. <laughs> Let's uh, get to some more lighthearted prank fun, guys. <laughs> because uh, Alan and Norris get back to Castle Rock. Alan goes to be with Polly, and we talked about what happens with him and her back at her place. But Norris using the men's room as his personal changing room we find out that there's a present for him there's a surprise package and sandy who's working the desk says that she saw buster but she doesn't mention that that cindy rose the lady who bought those two vases was Mm. here earlier i forgot who she was yeah (laughs) i kept i'm keeping a running tally this time guys because it got (laughs) away from me the first time and it won't get away from me again ben do you want to tell us about his surprise present this is, I, I think this scene is perfectly placed in this movie <laughs> because it's in the middle, like all of this, the, the stuff has been so violent and sad. And then we get a straight up Three Stooges scene. <laughs> it's great. Um, Norris comes out in his civvies. Talks about how he makes a sure to grab his uniform because Alan hates when he leaves his clothes just around the police station. <laughs> makes yeah. sense. Which is Norris is hilarious. Guys, get a locker room. And he goes to his desk and sees this big, like, like you would see in a fucking cartoon. Absolutely. Present wrapped gift with a big bow on it. And he's like, huh, cool. And he opens it and it's it's just crate paper and being Norris not thinking he goes to grab whatever it is and it's just a fucking mouse trap in it's his a defense, rat trap that's how I grab gifts too <laughs> with my fingers I also <laughs> thought it might have been a bear trap oh I thought it was until they described what it actually is. I was like, he just lost his fingers. <laughs> I thought it was a bear trap. Well, it tore off one of his fingernails completely, oh, which is just awful. Fucking I brutal. Hate that <laughs> so much. But <laughs> when it happens, <laughs> he just he's like, obviously it hurts real fucking bad. But <laughs> instead of just like taking it off like you would, he just beats his hand against a desk, (laughs) which is very, very funny. It's why. (laughs) But he takes it off, and immediately his first thought is the the dispatcher saying that she had seen Danforth there earlier. Yeah, and there's a message on the box that had said, just a reminder. When I read the note, just a reminder... I thought it was something from Gaunt. I mean, it kind of is in a roundabout way. Right. <laughs> so we go from here and we join Ricky Bissonette, a 19 year old who just wanted some nudes. Uh, of a underage yeah. girl, which can, can we stop did, did, doing that? I just hate it so much. Can we not? Did, well, did this make anyone else think this was, of all the terrible things he's done? This was the turning point where you're like, Oh, Mr. Gaunt's a really fucking bad guy. He just sold giddy porn. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, he uh, engineered the murder of two people. But, like, <laughs> this is where I draw the line. Yeah. And it's also yeah. it's also this 17-year-old famous actress 
with one or multiple older male actors who are also famous. Gross. It's all gross. Yeah, it's real gross. We see him sneaking up to the Baptist church where Reverend Rose also lives. And he slips a white card into the mail slot and runs off. This letter is a hateful, nasty letter (laughs) that CM is going to read for us. It's my favorite. But she's going to read it as Reverend Rose. Okay. (laughs) No, this is going to be terrible. And remember, listeners, this is Josh's fault. How uh, you doing, you stupid Baptist? Oh, it's getting Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Just read it. I'll just read it. I'll I'll drop it. You can do it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) How you doing, you stupid Baptist fat (laughs) rat fuck? We are writing you to say you better quit talking out against our casino night. We are just going to have a little fun. We are not hurting you. Anyway, a bunch of us loyal Catholics are tired of your Baptist bullshit. We know all you Baptists are a bunch of cunt lickers anyway. Now to this. You better pay attention, Reverend, and that's how it's spelled, Steamboat Willie. If you don't keep your dick face out of our business, we are going to stink you and your ass face buddies up so bad you will stink forever. Leave us alone, you stupid Baptist rat fuck, or you will be a sorry son of a bitch. Just a warning from the concerned Catholic men of Castle Rock. Okay, so the the I, I'm reading this on an ebook. And, um, for some reason, I don't know what the hell happened. The copy I have inexplicably, some letters are switched at random. That's how it's written. No, I mean, throughout the whole book. Oh. In the section with Aunt Evie, it would color Aunt Evie, but sometimes the letters would stick together. So it would color Aunt Evie, but then also Aunt Ewie. Oh, Because the V's, and they would turn like words with R-N would turn into an M. It was very strange. Yeah. But when I got to this part, the line, we will stink you up so bad (laughs) that you and your friends will stink forever, I had to stop and be like, that can't possibly be what this says. How do the letters, what letters are these supposed to be? Because... (laughs) <laughs> the the threatening letter can't be that we're going to stink you up. But here we are. And, and the line immediately following is that his reaction is better imagined than described. Josh, Which, how was it listening to King read it? It was amazing. It was so it was everything I wanted it to be. <laughs> we go from here to Gaunt's apartment, which we finally oh. see, which is completely and totally bare, except for the curtains in the window, because that's the only thing people can see from the street. Gaunt is standing there, and he is talking about that. He's referring to himself as an electrician of the human soul. He is hotwiring people to other people to get a reaction, and that Nettie and Wilma were just a test of his hotwiring ability. They are just a prelude of things to come. We had this discussion, he, he discusses it with Hugh Priest, I believe, of, of souls yeah. not being mm-hmm. money. And he kind of touches on that and just referring to that, yes, he's going to take the souls of all these people, <laughs> sure, but it's not, they're not worth anything. They're just trophies. And if you're going to hunt trophies, you're going to bag your limit. So he's satisfied with taking the souls of everyone here. Because when you have eternity, which is the implication... You got to fill time somehow. So he's he's standing there having these thoughts and he's making fists and his long yellow nails, which I don't think anybody sees because they haven't been described to us that way by yeah. any of our characters, mm-hmm. are digging into his flesh and he's bleeding kind of blood. And while this is happening, the townspeople, it's like he's causing them to have nightmares, except for Myra <laughs> and Ben. I just want to, I want to, I want to know, because I want to know, like, were you in math when you read this part? Very possible. 
<laughs> yeah, the Myra who got the picture of Elvis mm-hmm. just starts jacking it. But the way King <laughs> describes it is so great. nasty. Yeah, it's bad. And I hate that we just ended on that. So. Like, so, well, <laughs> yeah, the I love the implication of just blood magic mm-hmm. giving nightmares to this whole town yeah. at once. Yeah, because when he stops bleeding, then it says they, everybody yeah, kind of carries on. Him. And his last thought before the end of this chapter is, I need to hire an assistant. No, oh. well, no, don't. <laughs> so excited because if I remember correctly, who it is, I you do, I do. Okay. I, I hope it's not Buster. That that has to be that. Can, that'll be too chaotic. You know no, what? You're gonna you're gonna wish it was Buster. Oh, you're, just wait. <laughs> it's it's so good. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. Join us next time where we will be continuing our Patreon selection by Joel Jones of Needful Things, and we are going to be reading through chapter 17. For Joshua Kahn and Benjamin Graham, I'm C.M. Alexander, reminding you, the deal isn't done until Mr. Gaunt says the dealing's done. Hey everyone, C.M. Alexander here. We hope you enjoyed Needful Things Part 2. Thank you again to Joel Jones for selecting this book as part of our Patreon selection series. We would love to know what other violations you'd give Buster. Let us know on our social media at Dairy Public Radio or in an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. I have a feeling you guys can top bad dick, weird dick, ugly balls. I'm going to leave you with a blooper from the beginning of our episode. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. Isn't it me? Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Good call. I just got, I got absorbed in what I was doing. No, it's okay. I was just getting ready to... <laughs> All right. Ready? <coughs> Apparently not. <laughs> That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye. <laughs>